Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. We're in a series right now, as you know, of, uh, on this book, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a book that he wrote um, when he was uh, working at this underground semi- uh, seminary that was in Germany preparing young ministers to deal with, uh, you know, it's the ungodly regime that was going on there and work with that church that was increasingly being persecuted in Germany by the, by the Hitler government. And last week, um, the last couple weeks, Doug's been covering chapter one, which dealt a lot, or, I mean, yeah, beginning of chapter two, I'm sorry, which dealt a lot with the beginning of the day and how we need to start the day really getting oriented right and praying to the Lord, praising him, preparing for what's going to come. And I have the last part of chapter 2 here today, and this deals with, okay, what happens after we set our hearts uh, for the Lord? You know, the meals, the work, and the ending of the day is what's in this just very last part of chapter 2, and then Doug will pick it up at chapter 3 next week. So I hope you've been reading in this book and just being uh, stimulated by what Bonhoeffer has to say. Um, I remember uh, seeing this movie a couple of times, Oliver. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but it's a musical. It's based kind of loosely on uh, the the novel by Dickens, Oliver Twist. And there's these kids in here, and they're in an orphanage, and they don't get enough food, and um, they obsess about the food, and they're thinking about food, and then eventually they basically burst into this song, Food, Glorious Food. And it's like they start fantasizing about all the great foods, you know, and I love that song. And, you know, I think Bonhoeffer would uh, agree wholeheartedly with that whole idea of food, glorious food. But he's got a little bit different take on it. And he says, in order for us to really understand what food is all about as believers, we need to kind of get this little story that happened on Easter night. And um, it's a story of these two guys who are followers of Jesus who are walking down the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And they're all downcast and discouraged. And they're going like, yeah, Jesus died and we had so many hopes. And Jesus is with them, but they don't recognize him. And he kind of unfolds the Old Testament scriptures, all the prophecies to them. And he goes like, hey, this was all planned. It's all good And it says, by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And Bonhoeffer's take on this is that for us, to really understand what it's all about, it's important for us to recognize Jesus in our meals. It said they recognized him when he broke the bread. And he says, we recognize Jesus in our meals in like three ways. And the first one is that as we eat our food, we recognize that he's the giver of the food. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, He basically, you know, he talked about a couple of things about the kingdom, right, first. And we just just prayed this prayer before, didn't we? And then when we finally start praying for ourselves, the very first thing we pray for is what? Give us today the food we need. 
I mean, if we could get a hold of that, the idea that our food and our basic daily needs come from the Lord. I mean, our, our tendency is to go like, our daily needs are being met by the boss and the paycheck that we get. And so we worry when our jobs are being threatened or when the, you know, whatever in, uh, check that we get to help us out maybe is uh, in jeopardy or something like that. And he's going, you've got to get this idea that it's all coming from me. And if it's coming from me, then it isn't like dependent on the, on the job, on the paycheck, on, on the other people who we expect to get us the money that we need. Uh, he goes on later on in the chapter when he's talking about money. Jesus says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Just a couple of days ago, I'm looking out my uh, living room window, and in one of the bushes out there, this uh, cardinal flew up, female cardinal, and just starts like, there's little berries on the, that are left over on the bush, starts eating those things there. And I thought, you know, there's, I've been seeing a ton of birds, a lot of robins lately and chickadees and stuff. Just too lazy to fly to Florida for the winter, you know? <laughs> They're just hanging out here. They're going, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll get taken care of. And sure enough, you know, they're, they're getting taken care of. And, you know, when the, the berries run out on the trees, there's bird feeders, aren't there? And, it's, you know, I think I told the story once before where when I was working at the grocery store stocking and the aisle that I had had all the pet food, right? So we had t- tons of dog food because a lot of people have dogs, right? And a lot of cat food. And we have a small section for, like, bird food, right? And that was continually running out in the winter, and I remember working in that store, and then the, uh, the little old ladies would come up, and they go, sir, you're out of bird food here, <laughs> you know? And I'd go like, yeah, yeah, I know, you know, we'd, we couldn't have a big section because we needed everything for the dog and cat food, right? So I'd have to go in the back room and bring out bird food, you know, and then a few, you know, hours later, sir, or, you seem to be out, and I'm going, okay, you know, and I, I'd start resenting it, you know? And then one day I started thinking, you know what? These little old ladies, they're hearing from God, right? Because he's, he's going, I'm going to feed these birds, you know? I'm going to take care of them, and if we'll do it that way. And if, if the little old ladies forget, right, Dick Goddard would remind them. Remember him? <laughs> I was going, I've got to feed the critters. It's going to be cold out there tonight. God's taking care of them, and he's going, hey, you're so much more valuable than they are. I'm going to take care of you. And so in our meals, we recognize all this stuff's coming from God. And, you know, you think about it, us here in America, we got, you go into grocery stores. I just love walking through the aisles. All, like, hundreds of varieties of breakfast cereals, right? All this stuff. I'm going, oh, God, you're just over-blessing us. And every meal we eat, all that good food is just like we're recognizing he's the giver. He's the giver. And then, even better than that, he's the heavenly food. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It's John 6. And it it's, uh, takes place right after Jesus does this feeding of the 5,000, right? And the people are, like, excited. They're going, wow, this guy can produce tons of food. This is great. So they come to Jesus, and they go, bring us more. You know, we want more. Do more miracles. And Jesus told the crowd, this is uh, verse 47 of John 6, 
He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in a wilderness, but they all died. You know, that manna was miracle food, but they still died. He's going, it, couldn't, it just couldn't sustain them forever, right? He says, anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And he's going like, you want to be sustained forever? You want to, you want to just be like stimulated? You have something you could wake up in the morning and you'd go like, yeah, this, is, this makes the day worthwhile. He's going, then you've got to come to me. I'm the one who's really going to meet your needs in a deeper way than anything else can. And we've said it before, but we've got to say it again. It's like if we're relying on a, our job, our career, if we're relying on our friends, if we're relying on our, on our romance, you know, relationships, anything else, you know, our entertainment, it's all eventually going to peter out. It can't take us as far as it needs to go, and our needs are. And it's only Jesus that's going to provide that fulfillment that's really going to take us into eternity and through eternity. He is the bread of life. I, you know, you see things like this. I'm a physics student. I have no life, right? And it's true. If, if physics is in the study of physics or anything else that we do, if that's what we're going to lean on, eventually it's just going to run out of gas for us. You know, it's not going to be enough to take us through. Only Jesus is the real bread of life. And when we eat our food, we're going, yeah, Lord, you ultimately sustain me. You're my bread. And then the third thing is he also wants to feast with us. And it's, it's interesting, even back in the Old Testament, God was eating with his people. When uh, Moses uh, and the people got to Mount Sinai and they got the laws from God, there was a time just a few days after that, it says that Moses, Aaron, and then Nadab and Abihu, those were Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. And there they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. And this is like a picture here of how God, I think, wants to eat with us. And you can see this when, when here he shows up in the New Testament and here's Jesus God in the flesh, right? And what's he doing? So many times you see him eating with his disciples, right? Just enjoying a meal with them. Even after he rose from the dead, there was that time when he's cooking a meal, he's cooking breakfast on the shoreline, and they're out in their boat, and they're going, oh, that's Jesus. And I don't know if they recognized him because they saw his face, or they recognized him because they go, that's got to be Jesus. He's cooking food. You know, he was... I th sometimes I think, you know, when he talked about I'm going to prepare a place for you and going back into heaven, he's going, I'm taking all the information that I learned in my 33 years of being in the flesh here and all the good stuff, I'm going to bring that stuff into heaven and all that good food there too. And there's, you know, when you look at that meal that Jesus had with his disciples right before he went to the cross, 
It says, this is uh, from Luke chapter 22, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table and Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. So I've been looking forward to having this meal with you here, right? For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Isn't that cool? I, he's, he's saying in the kingdom of God, we're going to be drinking wine. Remember that old, uh, beer, that old drinking song, In Heaven There Is No Beer? <clears throat> That's why we drink it here. <laughs> that song's a lie. It says, I won't drink it again until the kingdom of God has come. He's going like, I'm looking forward to feasting with you guys, you know? And then it says he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples and saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he's going, hey, I'm the bread of life, and now I'm going to feed you with my very self here, right? And he's going, do this to remember me. And on one level, we remember that Jesus likes to eat meals with his family. we got a family that feasts together and Jesus himself is part of that. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So on one level, he's going like, remember that we're in a family that will eat together and has eaten together. But then on a higher level, he's going, and I made it possible by laying down my very life and you were remembering when we come to the Lord's table like we will next week, we're remembering the fact that he has sacrificed it all, his very blood, for you and me to bring us into that family, that family that's going to be rejoicing together for eternity. And there's a, in Matthew 8, some guy stood up. Uh, oh, I'm, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself right here. Um, Jesus was dealing with this guy who had great faith, this Roman centurion, and he said, I tell you this, that many Gentiles, many non-Jews, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of God. You know, a guy in Luke 14 said, what a blessing to eat bread in the kingdom of God. We've got a promise in Revelation here that the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. That invitation is out there for you and me, every one of us here this morning that can, can hear what I'm saying is that the Lord is going, I want you to be at my, my heavenly feast. Put your trust in me and you will be there. You know, recognizing Jesus at our meals changes a few things. One of them is that I think it's right that we invite him, <clears throat> excuse me, and accept, expect him to accept the invitation. You know, when I was a kid, every meal that we would have at my house, we would pray this prayer, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let your gifts to us be blessed. Did any of you have that same experience, same prayer? You know what, we did that, and then after, when I got a little older, I thought, well, you know, that's a nice prayer and everything. But when we had kids, we would do that before every meal, and we did that 
until we started having these arguments at the table. <laughs> and um, the arguments would go like this. One of the kids would go like, did we pray? And then another one of my kids would go like, yeah, we prayed. And then another kid would go, no, I don't think we did. And then somebody would say, Dad, did we pray? And I'd go, I can't remember. And I started to realize the prayer had become so rote. You know how sometimes prayers get that way? You don't even think about them anymore. So we decided to can the thing, and we just decided every meal we're going to pray, you know, just our, we'll take turns going around. Each one's going to pray something different on a different night, just so it keeps it fresh and we're actually concentrating on it. But it's a good prayer. You know, we're inviting Jesus to come to the table. And I still remember this, that when I, I was about 30 years old when I finally came to know the Lord, you know, and finally knew him in a personal way and trusted him. And I remember one of the things we did then was I said, you know what, Nan, I'm going to put an extra chair at the table, and that's going to be Jesus' chair. And I told the kids, I said, there's this extra chair that's here that Jesus is there because we're inviting him in to our, to our meal. And I remember when we moved from that house uh, we, and all the furniture was out, I went back to the house one more time. I remember sitting there on Nicholson Avenue in Lakewood in, the, in that dining room there and memories started coming back. And I'm not a person who cries a lot, right? But all of a sudden, just like tears started running down my face because I thought, wow, it was like... I. I remember what it felt like to have Jesus at my table. And I'd never, like, it was just so special that he was in my house and with my family at last. It was just so cool. And so I think it's right that at, when we're eating that we invite him in and expect that he is going to be there with us. Um, and then to realize that it's, it's our meal, not my meal. You know, when... When Paul started talking to the people in Corinth, he was yelling at them because he's going, how dare you share this meal together as the family of God and some people are going hungry. I mean, you bring your own and you just eat that and there's this other guy here and he's out of work and he doesn't have any food. And so it's also important for you and me as we think about the gifts that God's given us to make sure that every brother and sister of ours is taken care of too. They dare not not have their needs met. And then he says this. I thought this was very cool. He said, God cannot endure that unfestive, mirthless attitude of ours in which we eat our bread in sorrow with pretentious, busy haste, or even with shame. Though our da- Through our daily meals, he is calling us to rejoice, to keep holiday in the midst of our working day. In all those feasts in the Old Testament, it was always like these are very special, important feasts, and then it would say, uh, rejoice before the Lord as you eat. And this is like an important thing, you know. It isn't like, I mean, today we've got such a culture of just like, you know, just grab and eat, you know, and we just don't really enjoy in a lot of cases. We're just driving through and wolfing it down. And he's going like, yeah, it ought to be festive. It ought to be a good thing. And, you know, it goes back to Ecclesiastes 2 where He says, so I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. And then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? And I was thinking, the times in my life when I couldn't enjoy my food, those were times when I was worried. Like, you know, I'm supposed to speak right after something and worrying about that or something else is on my mind and I just 
not enjoying it, or there, are ty- there were times where I just felt so guilty about something I'd done, I couldn't enjoy the food. And I was just like drifting away from the Lord in my thoughts at those times. And he's going, if we're really understanding how he's got it together for us and, and he loves us and everything, we can enjoy, we can enjoy the food. I think of like students that I've had that they couldn't enjoy their food because they were so wrapped up in body consciousness and how they look to other people. And I thought, man, we get our eyes off of Jesus and we start getting our eyes on other things. It just keeps us from that enjoyment of, of the food that the Lord is intending for us to have. Now, there's also another movie that I remember that had a catchy song called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know? And I don't know how many of you... I don't even know if Seven Dwarfs is politically correct anymore, right? But whatever, you know? Okay, but they had that one song where Snow White is conning the animals into doing all the housework, right? And then conning the dwarves into doing all the work, too. Whistle while you work. And you go, like, how can you whistle while... I mean, work is, like, bad, isn't it? No, Bonhoeffer goes, like, yeah, work's a good thing. And this is another song that he would agree with right here. But he says it's important for us to get a right perspective on our work. So we got the meal, we go to work, or we're here at home and we're working or whatever it is. And to get that right perspective, we first of all got to realize that our work is, is really important to God. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, on the day of judgment, God's going to judge our work. Uh, it says their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. I mean, God's going to reward work that pleases him. You know, I think a big tragedy in the last year or two, especially like last year, is all the people who have just quit work. You know, the great resignation? What they say, like 4 million people just dropped out last year? And many of them were young men. You know, able-bodied men in their 20s and 30s just quit. And they go, you know, and they're getting enough money that they can, they can do this, right? And, you know, it's like uh, people who have done studies about this, they go like, they ask these guys like, so what are you doing now that you're not working like 40 hours a week? You know what the average answer is? They go like, I'm watching. I'm watching. They're sitting around watching television, scrolling on a phone, YouTubes, Netflix, all that kind of stuff. And all 2,000, many of these guys, 2,000 hours a year just spent, that would have been spent working, just watching. And the Lord's going, no, what a waste. You know, this work is something that he wants us to be productive. Even in the garden before sin, it was like God put people to work and it it says in heaven, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, he says, six days a week you shall work. And one day you take off. You know, that's the kind of idea that God wants us to be productive. And Bonhoeffer points out a couple things. He says, the world of work is an instrument in the hand of God for the purification of Christians from all self-centeredness and self-seeking. You know what he's talking about, don't you? You know, have you ever just gotten involved with a project? You're working on something. Maybe you're working on your car. Or maybe you're mowing a lawn. Maybe you're at work and you're doing a project. You know, maybe you're getting engrossed in, in a, something you're doing for school. And you get in that zone, and the time just flies by, and, you know, and you're just kind of enjoying yourself doing that work. You know? And that takes us away from that kind of thinking so much all about ourselves. 
you know, we got this thing about mindfulness in our culture where they go, maintaining a moment-by-moment awareness of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and surrounding environment. I don't think that's good for us. You know, they go, what am I thinking? How am I feeling? You know, what's going on here? You know, why am I thinking these various thoughts that I'm thinking? And it's like what work does is it distracts us from that self-obsession that weighs us down, you know? I was thinking, you know, one of the best things that I've seen that people adopt when they're getting into a period of depression is just to get physically active and do stuff and then get involved with other people's lives. So they start thinking about the other people and stop obsessing about themselves, and those things are, are so helpful. And I think also about just that whole selfishness that kind of takes over with us. I, I was thinking, this is my, the classroom that I'm teaching in right now. It's actually a big meeting room. And I got kicked out of my classroom that I had for maybe 35 years at the beginning of this year. They go, oh, I hate to tell you this, but you're not in 100A anymore. I'm going, oh, my cabinets are there, my file, you know, all the books and I got everything the way I want. I got all these ancient posters on the wall. What am I going to do, you know? And, and I'm going, and they go, yeah, you're going to be down in a big meeting room. And I'm thinking, I don't like that. But then I thought, you know, that's right. I mean, I'm only working a half day now, right? The people who get the classroom should be people who are working the whole, the whole day, and they got to be in there the whole day, and that bounce in and out. And I thought, you know, one of the things that work has taught me is it's not about gym. It's about the... It's about the group. It's about the organization. It's about the team. You know, what can I do for the organization right here? And that's a purifying thing to get off of like, hey, I'm building the empire of me. But it's about, and, and you know, you've probably worked with people. They're building their own little individual empire, but they're getting it wrong. And work can be a very valuable thing this way. And then he says, in work, the Christian learns to allow himself to be limited by the task and thus, for him, the work becomes a remedy against indolence and sloth of the flesh. Work is a remedy for my innate laziness. See these two little kids up here? The one on the right is Cecilia. Uh, she's a first grader. It's my granddaughter in St. Louis, and that's her sister Vivian there on the left, who's three. So uh, Cecilia loves school, but you, if you look closely, she's wearing her pajamas inside out, and so is Vivian. This is a St. Louis technique for making a snow day happen, okay? So you wear your pajamas inside out and go to bed, and you even get your little stuffed monkey there, inside out pajamas, right? And then you put a spoon under your pillow, and then you put an orange in the freezer. Now, all those things, they really overdid it because they got three days off of school down there, okay? Uh, and then get this. This is the irony of the whole thing. Uh, yesterday... After three snow days, three days off of school, just goofing off, uh, their mother, Sarah, says, oh, Cecilia and Vivian, I need your help on this. They burst into tears. They go, we never have any time to play. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I could point fingers at these little kids all day, but what am I doing up here in Cleveland? I'm not wearing my pajamas inside out because basically I hadn't heard of that yet. But I'm checking Fox 8 school closings every half hour, you know, and I'm going, yes, yes, and I love teaching, you know, but I, and I've been in the song, you'd think, but every, every time it looks like there's possible snow day, I don't sleep well, because I'm, I'm just getting, you know, ramped up for it, and then once I get the one snow day, then I start going, how about the next day, you know, 
And then I, I, look, I go on the phone. I was on the phone like about 3 o'clock in the afternoon of Thursday and going like, oh, baby, Parma has gone down. Now, they always go down first, right? I don't know if they ever have school there, okay? So they go, <laughs> okay, so there's Parma. And then I go, yeah, cool. And then all of a sudden I see Brooklyn. Ah, and then there's Berea, you know? And I'm going, yeah, it's cascading, you know? And it's all peer pressure in education, right? Those of you who have real jobs, you have no idea about this stuff, right? So it's, you know, but I'm thinking, is this not laziness and sloth? And what work teaches us is that, look, this work is actually, I find that I just get kind of disgusted with myself after a while when I'm not doing what I'm, you know, stuff that has any kind of meaning to it. And it, 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 it forces me to overcome that natural tendency. And I, I, it's in you too. You know, I mean, we all have that where we're fighting against that whole thing. A good thing, Bonhoeffer says. Um, I represent Jesus whatever I work at, whether I'm just taking care of somebody at home, whether I'm just working out, you know, working at uh, teaching my students at school or just working, whatever that thing is, it's like I'm a representative of, of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to, through him to God the Father. I want to make sure that what I'm doing is going to please him, that I can hold on to this job and do it with good conscience. And he says also, work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you're serving is Christ. Whatever we're doing, we're doing it for Jesus. He's the boss. He's the boss. And so we want to do it well. And I told the story before, but it reminds me of the first time I really thought of this in real terms was when I was working at the grocery store putting up canned peas. And I'm going, this is so boring. And then I thought, you know, I'm not working for Larry, the manager. I'm not working for the customers. Ultimately, it's Jesus. I'm working for him. And so I'm going to do the best possible job I can, even in this menial job right here. I can tell when students at my school are starting to seriously follow Jesus because their schoolwork gets better. They start realizing they're doing it for Jesus and they can't be slackers anymore with that schoolwork, or at least most of the time. <laughs> okay, you know, I, I just thinking of the story here, Slagels, Denmark, um, they spend 150000 a year cleaning their beaches. And what they do is they collect all this trash off the beach to make it look pristine. Then they give it to these guys who have tractors, and these guys take it, you know, uh, several yards out into the ocean and just dump it in the ocean. It's terrible, you know? And they're going like, how can you do that? You know, and they go, hey, our beachgoers want pristine beaches like the ones in south, southern Europe. Hey, you know, our, the guy who's running the show isn't the beachgoers, and it isn't like the people who can just see with their eyes, but the Lord is like the boss there, and we dare not you know, be slackers. It's just illogical for believers. Uh, the only way we're going to do that is to do what Doug was talking about last week. And Bonhoeffer says, wasted time which we are ashamed of, temptations that beset us, weakness and listlessness in our work, disorder and dis- indiscipline in our thinking and our relations with other people very frequently have their co- cause in neglect of the morning prayer. We've got to orient ourselves right at the beginning of the day for us to have the attitudes that we need toward our meals and toward our work. Uh, This is a picture here of Billy Graham on the Today Show in 1982. 
And before he was going on, a guy at the network said, hey, would Mr. Graham, we got a room set aside for Mr. Graham to pray before he goes on the show. And his assistant said, he doesn't need a room, forget it. The guy goes, what, Billy Graham isn't going to pray before he goes on the show? And the assistant said, Mr. Graham started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while eating breakfast. He prayed on the way over in the car, and he'll probably be praying all the way through the interview. This is a Christian's life, right? It's a life of prayer, and it orients us so we can do the things that we need to do in the way the Lord wants us to do them. And finally, he talks about finishing the day well. The work's over. The day is done. And he says a couple of things. One is, through the day, we've talked to people. We've interacted with people. We've just overheard things. And we've become aware that there are some needs out there. And so he says, this is a great chance to pray for the needs of the people that we have met that need some prayer. Um, If you look at that picture there, on the right-hand side of the basket, there's a little blue thing there that's got, like, white cards in it. This is an idea that my wife had that I thought, wow, that's, that's cool. She said, you know, there's a lot of people in our lives that need prayer. And there's people you go, yeah, I'll pray for you, but then you kind of let it go after a while, right? She said, why don't we write the names of each of the people that we think we need to pray for? Let's put them on cards, put them on front and back, and we'll just add them to the list there. And then every night after supper, what we're going to do is we're going to pray, each of us is going to pray for two cards, so four people, each one of us, and we'll just keep rotating our way through. Some of your names are on those cards, you know, just because, you know, became aware, hey, there's a need right there, somebody needs something like that, and we just keep praying them until, you know, until uh, that need is met, and then we pull it out, and then we keep replenishing, you know. But I think just little strategies like that, to pray for the needs of others, and bring those things to the Lord. We need to support each other. And then uh, we need to lay down our shame. You know, it's like that song that uh, I cited in that picture uh, before where it talked, you know, come as you are, that beautiful song we sometimes sing here. You know, lay down your burdens and lay down your shame. There have been things where we did the wrong thing during the day, and we need to go like, Lord, you know, I want to bring this to you and just uh, confess it was wrong and just... Thank you for forgiving me for that. And to make things right. You know, you talk to married couples who've been married a long time, you go, how'd you do it? To go like, we didn't let offenses fester. We dealt with them. We dealt with them. That was a big, a big secret. So we do that as much as we are able to. And finally, we go to sleep. And the Bible sometimes talks about death as a sleep. And it talks about it in that way because... Our minds are still going, right? And we're with the Lord, but our bodies are just waiting for the resurrection, right? And as we're, we go to sleep at night, it's like we make ourselves kind of vulnerable, don't we? And we're vulnerable physically because we're just sleeping, but we're also vulnerable in our minds, right? Because the evil one doesn't go to sleep at night either. You know, he's, he's awake. And so the best thing we can do is just entrust ourselves to the Lord. And we have precedent for that because when Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins, it says, by this time it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. It's right after Jesus said, it's finished. I've paid the whole price for sin. I've reconciled people 
to myself. And then he shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. He trusted himself to the Lord. You know, it was just like Bill Slocum a couple weeks ago. He entrusted himself to the Lord. He's taking a step into, you know, the unknown in some ways, right? And that's what we do every night when we go to sleep. We're entrusting ourselves to the Lord. We know that we're going we're to be in good hands all night. He's going to protect our bodies. He's going to protect our minds. He's going to steer things for our good and for his good purposes. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, I just want to thank you for all the blessings that are just symbolized so much in our daily meals. And we just thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're our bread. You're our sustenance. You're taking care of us. You're so good. Lord, just help us to have that attitude uh, toward not only our meals, but also toward our work. And Lord, we just do entrust ourselves to your care now when we go to sleep and then when the time comes for us to go home to be with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.